0: It's so good to see each and every person gathered here this morning. I realize that certainly there are so many things that are offered to us by way of distractions and other matters in the world, and yet the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, Sunday, is the day that, of course, you and I have a special appointment. It's our determination to always be in the assemblies because therein we realize that that's what God has commanded. But it's also good for us. It gives us a proper focus and a proper consideration of that which is our sojourn on this earth. And in so doing, of course, it lets us always have the encouragement and the instruction so that we can live as God would have us to do it. I'm so thankful for each of the opportunities that God gives us to serve Him. Aren't you? This morning, as we give some thought for the next few moments, to a lesson, as you can see on the wall to my left, entitled, Distinguishing Gender. Distinguishing Gender. We're going to use that text that was just read a moment ago. Andrew read from the 22nd chapter of Deuteronomy. You may want to keep your finger positioned in that place. We'll be looking at a number of other verses as well. But let me use this opening statement to help us consider these introductory remarks. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, there's a sense in which this lesson, it seems to me, has one aspect that's not terribly exciting because in some ways it reflects upon the current culture in which we live. It has something to say that's so extremely sad in the sense that it would appear that culture has arrived at the point where what once was obvious and what once was so naturally understood that nobody needed instruction on the truth but now but now sadly that appears not to be the case you may have heard on the news in recent weeks yea recent months in which the matter of gender has occupied such a particular case of confusion that you and I can almost claim to be dumbfounded as to how such a state could ever have arrived You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, we're going to develop some things from the Word of God that I hope will be reminders to you and me that, of course, though culture may so often make proclamations, may we ever, ever remember the words of James 4, verse 4. You adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And it doesn't matter how persuasive or how eloquent the world may make proclamations or statements. If it disagrees with the Bible, if it disagrees with the truth, then what the world says has to, in fact, be overlooked or neglected in the sense of what it demands. This next slide will be one. that brings before us the matter of the distinction. Now I realize that you and I, being familiar with those opening statements in the book of Genesis, many of these things are not by any means a surprise to us. We know that as God fashioned His material universe, that on the sixth day of His creative activity, therein, of course, He not only made the land animals, fashioning and creating them, but He also created man that day man adam the very first man first corinthians fifteen forty-five. there was not a long evolutionary process that finally led up to adam god made him as a first man that day as paul highlighted that feature again in first corinthians 15 he used that to powerfully make note of the fact that whereas adam was the first man it was of course through adam that sin entered the world and it was of course through him and his activities that he recognized finally his separation from God. When Adam, of course, was created, we realize that there was something that God recognized that was not good. At that moment, the man was alone, Genesis 2.18. And we remember as that chapter closes that God brought into reality the woman. He created Eve. She too did not develop from a long evolutionary process. She was created from Adam's side, right on the spot, and not only that, she was married the same day she was created. Kind of amazing, isn't it? You might appreciate then that in that observation, these initial comments, God fashioned the man, He fashioned the woman. It is true that you can make note of some similarities about the nature of those events, but it's also true that there are some notable differences. Men and women are different, and I don't mean just physically. We understand that they have differing perspectives, their psyche, the opportunity that they often utilize to approach a subject. It just seems to be basically different. It's not to say that one is always right or the other is always wrong, but it is to know that the Bible has a respect for that which is that distinction. Maybe in light of that, you'll notice The human family, it seems, has arrived in this modern age such that there isn't always a respect for that distinction between male and female. I realize at the bottom of that slide, I've just tried to be very brief, but no doubt on the news, many of you probably are familiar with a lot more things than than I have heard, at least in recent weeks. But you'll notice... There now is encouragement. Sometimes males are encouraged to develop their feminine side. They're encouraged to let their hair be such that in some ways it's difficult to tell they're a male. Their hair looks like a female. They wear jewelry like a female. And it's often the case that that is encouraged. It's not only condoned. Again, it's even encouraged, at least by some. On the other hand, you'll notice there are females who, again, there are times when they're encouraged to develop their masculine side to the point where it's excessive. And by that I mean they often wear clothing that looks like the male, their haircut looks like the male. Sometimes they're even encouraged to allow certain features of their voice and otherwise to more closely mimic the masculinity of things. I might say in light of all those things near the bottom of that slide, That kind of encouragement, you and I now have seen taken to a whole new level. In this modern consideration in which there's tolerance for everybody and everything, no matter what your viewpoint, no matter what your perspective, suddenly we're supposed to believe that it's fine. There now are circumstances in which adults, circumstances in which administrators and those who have significant influence are encouraging youngsters and encouraging youth not to be committed to a gender. You're too young to know whether you're actually a male or a female. You need to allow that to develop, and then you make the choice later. And so youngsters in schools are being allowed to not make a determination of their gender because at that point they claim, I don't know yet. Really? It's a sad thing to consider the kind of confusion that's allowed to reign supreme sometimes, isn't it? Doesn't it sound a bit about like, at least in principle, the scenes of Isaiah 5 when they were calling good evil and evil good, light darkness and darkness light, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter? Now that kind of issue reminds us if one allows those considerations to rest in the mind of this youngster and then that's allowed to fester and develop, it's no wonder that, When the teenage years arrive, what confusion will reign supreme? And not only confusion, but very harmful things for that individual as he or she then is supposed to walk productively through life. The Bible doesn't leave us in any consideration of this confusion, does it? You'll notice on this next slide, I keep going the wrong direction. My apologies. The considerations on this particular slide lead us, among other things, to that passage that was just read in our hearing a moment ago. When God created Adam and Eve on that sixth day of His activity, that creation activity, we notice it says in Genesis 1, and 27, let us make man in our image. Now you'll notice in that verse it makes note in reference to both the male and the female. Both bear the very image of God in the sense that both are very important and very worthy and very special. And therefore, males or females, either one, can't claim that the other is inferior in the sense that God doesn't have any desire for or work for the other, but rather it's an understanding that each one are made in a way that should be respected for the way that God fashioned them. Those differences that God has embedded within the human frame as male and female, those are to be understood and at least respected for what they make possible. You'll notice then that brings it to that lesson text. Don't you find it intriguing that in the midst of this ancient era, it was not what you and I would call the modern age. Moses wrote these things in Deuteronomy 22. This was before the children of Israel entered into the land of Canaan. It was while they were yet soon to enter that land that Moses made this statement, and I have listed it on the slide for your consideration. "'The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God.'" Now I would ask you to notice that that language seems so, so very strong, doesn't it? Here in the midst of this ancient time, when Moses addressed the children of Israel speaking for the great God of heaven, he powerfully and directly said, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. Now you'll notice that the particular clothing, the garments that were utilized and worn in that ancient era, they too, like today, bore a distinction between the genders. You and I, perhaps at times, recognize how far the human family has come. Think about all the kinds of clothing today. The kinds of clothing a woman can choose to wear, the kinds of clothing a man can choose to wear... Although their choices may have been much more limited in the ancient era, God nonetheless said a woman is not to wear what pertains to a man. There should be a distinction in what she wears to recognize the fact that it does not bear the matter of masculinity. Not only that, you'll notice the next matter, of course, addresses the man just as surely and just as directly. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. Maybe you and I can pause for a moment and assert then that even in the midst of that ancient culture, God understood and He embedded within their good thinking a proper respect for the genders. The woman was not to conduct herself by way of behavior or clothing in such a way that it was confusing whether she was a female. And by the same token, the man was not to conduct himself or make presentation of himself in a way that would permit confusion as to whether he was a male or not. It was to be understood and it was to be embedded even in what they wore. Maybe, though, the last statement of that verse is the most telling of all. For it says, those that do so are abomination unto the Lord. That carries with it such sting, doesn't it? Maybe, like myself, the hair nearly rises up on your neck when you hear how seriously God took this. We know there are lots of other crimes, sins, if you please, in that Old Testament era that were described with the word abomination, and this was one of them. The failure to respect the differences in the genders. It was so serious that God said it's an abomination. That word abomination means to abhor, to loathe to in fact can make consideration of this matter such that it is to be absolutely abhorrent. And notice, God hates this. No wonder in light of all those things, you and I can make some obvious conclusions. What was true in ancient Israel, we seemingly appreciate the following. This clear distinction that we see... This very direct description that was in that location reminds us, as you can see, it was treated by way of commandment. Now you and I remember many of the other commands that God gave them. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Notice how certainly that was stated, yet this was just as certain. A woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment... Those commandments are so explicit, there certainly is no reason to misunderstand them. And yet, come down to the consideration of this. Might we pause and state this. If a youngster is allowed to remain in a confused state about the the notion of gender, what will that mean when finally matters of sexuality come about when the teenage years arrive? It's no wonder the level of confusion would reach a heightened pinnacle. And, of course, in Leviticus 20, that too is addressed. A woman is not to lay with a woman. A man is not to lay with a man. That too is an abomination. Leviticus 20, verse 13. You'll notice then that as parents and those who are in positions of influence, they and we, of course, are supposed to help our youngsters develop as God would have them to, be they as boys, be they, of course, females as girls. That recognition brings us to notice the statement made about our God. God is not the author of confusion. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 33 and following. He isn't. That which He puts in place by way of His creation, we understand the orderliness of it, the features of our solar system and the universe at large, and the characteristics even of the systems of this planet. And there an amazing order to be seen in it. But that order reminds us that God made all of that and He orchestrated it. Surely, in light of that, you'll notice there's also orderliness in the spiritual realm as well. That was the point that Paul used to state the things he did in 1 Corinthians 14 the usage of spiritual gifts. In fact, even to this day, the way in which you and I engage in worship, it is not to be done disorderly. If it is disorderly, that is not because God commanded it that way. It's because we have degenerated into making it that way. God intended worship to be done decently and in order. 1 Corinthians 14.40 I would submit to you in light of those things, what about then the distinguishing of the genders? What are some practical things that maybe you and I as parents, you and I as those in positions of influence might keep in mind to be matters of helpfulness? One of the first things, it seems, is the natural artifact of the hair. I make that statement because of the way the scriptures present it. There at the bottom of that slide. Wasn't it true that Paul made this statement by inspiration in 1 Corinthians? Chapter 11, verse 14. Doth not even, even nature teach you that it is a shame for a man to have long hair? Now that was written to a city, to a particular congregation that was in the midst of that ancient era, and they seemingly were happy to let anything develop. Everything was tolerated, and yet Paul made mention in terms of hair, even nature teaches you that a man with long hair is not a thing to be appreciated. It's a shameful thing. Might I ask today then that you and I notice a culture that seems in many cases not to respect that idea. The man is oftentimes in a position that he wears long hair, extremely lengthy, but you'll notice that that seems to then bear more the marks of what would not be as pleasing to God. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, On the opposite side to that, a woman's hair is a glory to her. Having reference to, in that same second of 1 Corinthians 11, to the very powerful covering God has given her, the nature of the feature of what attaches to that which God has blessed her to have. But now that distinction is a natural part of the Word of God, isn't it? No one has written it into it. That's what the Holy Spirit said. Thus, it's... Wonderful for a young girl to have long hair, but not for a young boy. That would be sending to him the wrong message of what should be properly understood about the masculine way God would have him to be. He was made differently than a girl. That difference, maybe at the bottom of that slide, does lead us to note this now. The word long does occur in that verse. And many have noted, God doesn't define how long, long is... But I think most of us would agree that if the hair is long enough on a boy to where he can be confused with a girl, that's too long. It has arrived at the point where surely one can appreciate the whole basis for it. Namely, that verse has been exceeded. When you and I think about the nature of the hair then, that's one of the distinguishing characteristics. And back in Deuteronomy 22, it was the garments. They were understood, of course, in that era to be distinct as well. When you and I developed that even more carefully, what other differences do, do exist, of course, between the male and the female? Differences, of course, besides their, their physical characteristics. We noted earlier in the lesson, isn't it true that God fashioned men and women in a different psyche so often? In the sense that they honor and adore things in different ways. I say it that way with care. They both may adore the same object or it may have great respect for it, but it's developed and it rests in the mind in a different way in a man than it does in a woman. Many have written books. You may remember perhaps the most famous one Men are from Mars, Women from Venus. I never read that book, I admit, but the fact is it gained worldwide notoriety for trying to highlight the differences between the way a male approaches something and the way a female does. Think back to that consideration, if you would, for a moment in relation to the modern confusion of our culture in which that line between the male and female seemingly is being grayed more and more. That's really not good, is it? As we come to this next slide, what about some of the other ways, then, that behavior should be considered in the Word of God? I mentioned earlier about that matter in ancient Corinth. There's a particular word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 6 that I would ask you to appreciate with me as well. Paul makes a listing, a distinction, if you please, about some of the behaviors taking place in Corinth. And some of them, just like today, you and I would readily agree, are not to be upheld. People engaging in fornication, people engaging in embezzling and other kinds of of illicit things like that. You and I would be so quick to agree that's not right. But now in that same listing, it's somewhat interesting that Paul uses the word effeminate. There were those in Corinth who were effeminate. Now, might I ask, what does that word mean? It likely is a term that we don't use very often today. It likely is a term that is very much reserved. Well, I've asked you to notice the following definition. When Paul made reference to these that were effeminate, and that they would not enter the kingdom of heaven, that alone is a serious issue. That alone is a very strong condemnation of this behavior. And yet the word effeminate means having qualities generally attributed to women. In other words, here is a male acting like a female. He is not respecting the fact that he was made as a male. Now, I know very well, and it has been on the news so much that maybe most of us are a bit tired of seeing it. Individuals that become a woman, though again he was a man. That kind of sadness kind of keeps us to the following observation. I've just listed for you Webster's Dictionary of the Word Effeminate. I would ask you to notice what the Greek word meant. I think you'll notice some similarity. In fact, a strong one at that. Malakos is the word that is translated in that particular place of 1 Corinthians 6 as this word "effeminate." That word literally has reference, again, to one that's unmanly. One, as you can see, that does include not respecting the sexuality with which he was made. That seems like a very critical issue as it relates to our modern culture, don't you think? And yet here, as Paul addressed that very matter, it had to do with this very failure on the part of some in ancient Corinth. Might we ask the question, has anything changed in that regard? Does God still view this the same? It was written in the New Testament era, wasn't it? And the law of Christ shall remain until the end of time. It is true that what was written in 1 Corinthians is still so important for us to understand. Malachos had reference to the same kind of failure to respect the difference in gender. Now it was, of course, for those on the male side. Here's a male acting like a female, not respecting the very character of the masculinity with which he was made. That sadness maybe brings us to the bottom. Think how often the roles of male and female are respected by God in the pages of the New Testament. I would bring to your attention 1 Timothy 1 verses 9 and 10. Even in that occasion, as Paul addressed a completely different city, here it was the city of Ephesus, they were having some who were having this issue and problem, and it was condemned as strongly for them as it was for Corinth. I would use all these verses to at least help us put in mind, certainly we have a degree of sadness for someone who is as confused as this. But the fact that God's Word makes these statements helps us realize God's Word must always be respected and must always be upheld. As we close that slide and think about this next one as well, I would ask you to consider these conclusion thoughts. I'd like to develop them rather thoroughly, if I might. Some of the parts of this... I think we ought to consider in light of our study this morning with a few additional considerations. First of all, at the very top of that slide, we have discussed the fact that God has highlighted in His Word the great honor that goes with being a woman or of being a man. In the New Testament, Paul, in fact, will even so proudly say in Galatians 3.28, neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female. Women can be saved just the same way men can. It's the same plan of salvation for each one. The same consideration of opportunity to be a child of God. The same beauty that goes with the fact of being a member of God's family. Christ's blood was shed for a female just as much as for a male. Now that too brings us to perhaps observe this. Making that statement of the fact that there is no indignity does bring us to note this. There are clearly differences between men and women. In fact, in the church, there are certain things God has not given for a woman to do. She is not to teach or to usurp authority over the man. 1 Timothy 2, verse 11 and 12. Therefore, we recognize God made the consideration that in light of what happened in Eden... And given the way in which He fashioned her, she was not made for that kind of office or those kind of activities. She, of course, was made for different things in a sense that there are works that she can do. Now, considering that, might we also notice as we have desire to be respectful of what God has asserted, might we also note this. Society typically sees this very differently. Many, of course, consider that a woman and a man each ought to be able to have a right to do anything that each wants and with equal equality. We notice, though, in light of all those things, the statements of our lesson today bring us back to realize this. May we carefully distinguish the genders in every way that's in harmony with the Word of God, wishing, of course, to lift high the banner of what God has taught us That even brings us to note, of course, the behavior of our families. The way in which we understand that the husband is given certain duties and they are not to be mixed up with the duties of the wife. Each, of course, make complementary notion to the success of that family. Wasn't it true the women were told, the wife was told, you guide the house. Now we notice that statement was told to her. He also told her to love her husband, Titus 2 verse 4. Now, as you think about those, consider the case of what else was directed to her. There's a very interesting statement found in Ephesians 5 verse number 33. I would ask that you notice that particular passage with me as we come to a point of observation again about this this segment of the lesson. Ephesians chapter 5 verse number 33. In the midst of this discussion in which Paul was highlighting the church and its relation to Christ, he used the relation of a husband to his wife to help explain or at least give us some principles of understanding. But there's a very interesting statement when he arrives at verse 33. It says, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. So husbands, you and I are told expressly that we must love our wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Husbands, we've been given a a great task. And our wife will reciprocate that love when we love her the same way Christ loved the church. But now may I ask, as she of course feels the degree of our love to her, look at the last part of that verse. Look at this particular duty or this particular notion that's, that's given to her. And the wife see that she reverence her husband. I've always thought that was a very interesting presentation. And I'm sure you'd agree with me. You and I probably have it ingrained in our thinking that the word reverence, of course, attaches to worship. Now may we say, no man, not even husbands, are to be worshiped. I'm sure the wives won't won't be bothered by that assertion. But you'll notice one of the other definitions that's often attached to that word reverence. It goes along with great respect. May we say then one of the duties given to the wife, in addition, of course, to guiding the house, in addition to loving her husband, notice here is to have reverence for him. And that again means to have a deep-seated respect For again, that which is his duty as given to him by God. May we say then that that's one of the most beautiful things that God made different between a man and a woman. There are certain things to which a woman responds. We know that commitment is very important to her, and it should be. And we understand that conversation is very important to her, and it should be. And we understand the other duties that God has ingrained in her that allow her to run the house in a way that's so profitable and successful as she guides it. But you'll notice that there's something different about the way God made a man. Sometimes those things are so important to her, not that they're unimportant to the man, but He looks at them differently. But a verse like this one teaches us this. One of the things that God has placed in the heart of a man that is so very telling and so very meaningful is that degree of respect. If a woman doesn't respect her husband, that house is going to be so far from what it ought to be because he thrives on it. It is an ingrained part of his psyche. He wants her to be proud of him. He wants her to, in fact, have confidence that he is able to carry out the duties and responsibilities that God has given him to do. Do you begin to see the point? If we raise boys who do not respect their masculinity God gave them, how is a woman ever going to respect them the way this verse demands? We need to rear young men who not only have their masculinity, of course, but they're taught to develop it in the proper way. And so that, of course, their girlfriends and wives will come to respect it as God would have them to. As you think about these gender differences, Isn't it interesting what's in the book of God? And we've only touched the surface really this morning. The book of Proverbs has so much to say about it in the Old Testament. It is for now, though, that as we close this lesson, now we come to the bottom of that slide. The same thing in which we might now note this. May you and I, despite the culture in which we live, respect the Bible always, even in matters relating to gender differences. And as we do that, of course, we'll not be hateful about it, but we will be truthful. Today, as you think about yourself, I mentioned earlier that male or female, either one has opportunity to approach the blood of Christ. And in fact, the gospel plan of salvation is the same. Today, if you aren't a member of that body, if you've never rendered initial obedience to the cause of the Master, please think urgently about your situation. I would ask that you keep in mind God's plan of salvation, of course. You need to hear the gospel and believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God, and be baptized. At that point, living faithfully till death, what a sweet eternal reward is yours. But if you have erred from faithfulness, if you have begun to engage in things in a public way in which others recognize that your life is not a mirror of the truth of God... Why don't you make confession of those things, repent of them, come back, of course, unto God. He'll be happy upon your repentance and confession, of course, to forgive those sins. If we could be of help to you today in that regard, we'd be delighted to do it. The uh, gospel invitation's extended, and this is a convenient time. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?